0: In Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Also Rises, the character Mike Campbell responds to being asked how he went bankrupt. Gradually, he says, then suddenly. It turns out that most inflection points happen that way. On this episode, Rita McGrath on how to notice the gradually so you're not surprised by the suddenly. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 430. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. We all wish. That we could see the future, don't we? We wish we could predict the future. We certainly have attempted, many of us, to do that. And yet, it is something that is a struggle for so many of us to see around the corner. Yet, it turns out that there's a lot that we can do as leaders to be conscious of what's next, what's coming, not only in our own industry, but in the broader organizational community. And there's so many things that research has uncovered. That are great practical steps we can start on. Today, I am excited to uh, introduce a guest to you that is going to help us to see around corners much more effectively. I'm thrilled to welcome to the show Rita McGrath. She is a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and a longtime professor at Columbia Business School. Rita is one of the world's top experts on innovation and growth and is one of the most regularly published authors in the Harvard Business Review. She's consistently ranked among the top 10 management thinkers in the world and was ranked number one for strategy by Thinkers50. Rita is the author of the bestseller, The End of Competitive Advantage. Her new book, just released, is titled, Seen Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Rita, so glad to meet you and welcome you to the show.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, I have just been fascinated by the book and your research and thinking about seeing around corners. And I I suppose the question that this begs initially is in the title of the book about inflection points. So let's start there. What is an inflection point?
1: So a strategic inflection point is a series of events, typically, that cause the taken-for-granted assumptions that underlie your business to change in non-obvious ways. And typically it's because they've shifted or sh- or changed the constraints that your business operates under and that causes you to have to question, you know, what are the very bedrock assumptions that you've made about how your business works. So just to make a simple example, if you had said 40 years ago, that today people would be running around with, you know, supercomputers in their pockets and that there would be no such thing as a phone book anymore, you know, a physical phone book anymore that people used, or that you would no longer use paper maps to get directions how to get from A to B. People would have looked at you as though you had two heads. And yet today, not only are these pretty normal, but we don't even remember a time before this was the way that we did things. And so it it has the effect of completely undermining the taken-for-granted assumptions that underlie the way that you've accepted reality. So one of my favorite quotes that illustrates how dangerous this is was from 2006 when the CEO of Rand McNally, which was the original map people, you know, these were people that made their living on selling maps, right, paper maps, and they said, ah, oh, he said, he said, ah, oh, the idea that people are going to get rid of paper maps is just absurd. It's like saying newspapers are going to go away. You know, people are still going <laughs> to want to sit down with their morning coffee and open up their newspaper. <laughs> so funny. And that was the world in 2006, which isn't that long ago when you think about it. It
0: isn't that long ago. And I came across, oh, I, 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 I can't think of where the reference was, but there was an article that was written two or three hundred years ago by a thinker, a researcher, and had outlined what a mobile phone would look like. It wasn't called a mobile phone, but had, had, had theorized that in the future. People would have these things in their pockets that they would be able to communicate with the world. And I got to thinking about what you just said of like, so many of us would like, well, the world's not going to be like that in 10 or 15 years. And yet there are people and there are data points out there that indicate some of these changes, aren't there?
1: Oh, absolutely. And when you look at any big change that ends up being very destabilizing, inevitably, if you trace the idea back in history, you'll find people that saw its potential. But very often, they're peripheral people. You know, they're not sitting at the decision making bodies at corporate headquarters. They're not in the business. you know, They're not running the day-to-day operations. They're scientists, or they're science fiction writers, or they're interns, you know, or they're people that are far from the corridors of power, but who have these different perspectives, which allow them to see things that people that are right up to their noses in the day-to-day operations of the business just can't see.
0: I love the analogy you use of that snow melts from the edges. Tell me more about that.
1: Well, it was Andy Grove in his seminal work, Only the Paranoid Can Survive, the, the book Only the Paranoid Survive, back in the 90s, who said, you know, if you want to know where spring is first going to make itself felt, you have to go out to the periphery because that's where the snow is most exposed. And the way that I reframed that was, you know, snow melts from the edges. It doesn't present itself neatly at corporate headquarters at the coffee table and say, here I am. It starts brewing you know, out there somewhere where you're not paying attention, where things are just beginning to shift. And it's being attentive to what's going on, those often somewhat obscure-looking little shifts that take place far away from the main course of your business, but which, if you logically trace them forward, could have an incredibly destabilizing effect.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And uh, the other thing that is su- super interesting is that while well, there's so many different examples and in so many different kinds of industries, there are some, some stages and some patterns that tend to emerge in a lot of these inflection points. And you've identified in your work four basic stages that tend to show up
1: mm-hmm. during
0: an inflection point. Could you share that with me as far as like, what those look like and what those different stages are?
1: Sure. And, and you'll find that these stages are quite similar to the Gartner's groups, the, the hype cycle and, and, you know, I would want to give them credit because they have talked about this as well. Um, so the initial stage of a, a looming inflection point is usually greeted by incredible amounts of hype and massive overreaction. So everybody's like, oh, my God, the sky is falling. The world is going to change. These things are never going to be the same again. We, we have to move urgently now and we have to do it really quickly and we have to be first, you know, because otherwise we're going to be left behind. So there's this usually frantic overcommitment to something before it's even clear what it is. Then there's this shakeout, right? The this sort of trough of disillusionment is what Gar- Gartner calls it. And this, this, oh my God, you know that didn't work out. And a lot of times, the reason it didn't work out is completely misexplained by people. The reason it didn't work out is usually because the ecosystem was incomplete. Um, uh-huh. If you go back to the early days of e-commerce, for example, you know nobody knew how to pay for something over the internet. Nobody knew. You know, I'm going to trust some robot with my credit card. I don't think so. (laughs) You know, so there was just nobody knew how to package stuff for the Internet. Nobody knew how to get things from A to B. So there were a lot of missing pieces and it took it took you know, years of investment in the whole ecosystem before we said, okay, you know, I place an Amazon order on Monday and I should have that delivery by Wednesday, and here's how I pay for it, and here's how it's secure, and 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 so it took a long time. So you have that sort of initial hype, trough of disillusionment. Then you have the emergent survivors that are actually now demonstrating this is real and it can make money and it has a business model behind it and you could actually do something with it. And then as that Unfolds eventually, you have the thing being now taken for granted as the way everything works, and so it's this very interesting transition from could never be never going to happen. Don't bother me with this, you know, call me when it gets to be a real thing to wait a minute, there was a time before we had instant on demand access to everything
0: yeah it's, it's fa- I'm thinking about it in the in the context of what you said of online commerce and like the dot com bubble uh, in the late '90s of that hype, and then the dismissiveness that came after that. A well, while, you you can't make money online running a business, and and just how much mm-hmm. now we're seeing that emerge, and, and even in some ways grow into maturity. And you know, as, as you were saying that to us, thinking that is exactly what happened to podcasts too. Back in two thousand four, mm-hmm. two thousand five, there was this t- there was this huge hype around podcasts were going to be the next big thing. And then there was this five years of really dismissiveness. And then now we're starting to see this emerging uh, ecosystem that's really built. And some people would say it's even more mature, but it, it's it's almost the exact same pattern. And I guess that leads me into what I'm really curious about and and also really hopeful about looking at your work and some of the patterns in the past is there's a lot we can do See around corners. And there's some really practical things that leaders can do to see some of the early warning signs and to begin to uncover the the edges, right, where the snow is melting. And one of the things you mention in your work is to see the early warning signs, create information flows that reach directly from leaders to the front lines of business. Tell me more about that.
1: So one of the reasons that leaders get blindsided is that they are so up to their eyeballs in swimming in the world that is, that they just don't position themselves to pick up the weak signals that are happening at the edges. And we all know the more senior you are as a leader, the harder and harder it gets to get absolutely unfiltered information about reality. You know, it all gets massaged and and changed and edited before it ever gets to you. So the first, I think, big Aha! To realize is is nobody's going to do that for you. This is something you have to do for yourself. And so in the book, I talk about eight different practices leaders can use to make sure that they're getting that unvarnished, real information from the edges. And I think the first one is, what are your opportunities that you personally get out to the edges and see what's really going on? Because the organization will try to protect you from the reality. And you know, business lore is got hundreds and hundreds of examples but one of my favorite ones is a recent one from the gap which was trying to give its retail workers more predictable hours in their stores and this new york times reporter asked a store manager why is this so hard and the first response was of course corporate you know corporate corporate's going to run a skinny jeans promotion on thursday and everybody's running around like you know chickens with their heads cut off Tuesday and Wednesday to try to get all the skinny jeans where they're supposed to be to fit in with the national promotion. So that that takes them by surprise and that's unexpected. But the second thing I thought was even more interesting was the second big dynamic was corporate visits. Oh yeah, you know, I had an executive in here the other day and I had everybody on triple overtime to get ready. Well, You know, think about that. So here's your executive. (laughs) They honestly think they're walking into a store and they're going to see what the customer sees. And what they're seeing is some sanitized Potemkin Village version of what the store really is. They're Uh not seeing stuff unfolded and inventory that's not where it's supposed to be and clueless service people who don't know where anything is. And, you know, the fact that there's no waiting rooms when, when you're ready to try something on. I mean, and, 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 they're not seeing that. They're seeing this beautiful perfected image of what the store should be. <laughs> and that's just a trivial example. And if you multiply that over hundreds and hundreds of, of hours of executive time, it is so hard to get an honest face-to-face experience of what your customers are really experiencing. And, you know, frankly, the higher up you go, the more, the more you're likely to be cut off from this. I was just, in fact, talking to an executive the other day who had been working with one of the major airlines and they were trying to figure out how how do we do nice things for the people that fly in the back of the plane. And one of their ideas was for an international flight, well, oh, let's have a buffet, you know, when people arrive and it'll be gorgeous, and it'll be really great. And this was being piloted by people you know, who are sort of on a focus group, and the focus group people said, tell me what, tell you what, you, you guys that come up with this idea, you've never actually flown in the back of the plane, have you? Because kind of, <laughs> like I said, you know, all, like we're on an international flight, we're stuck in the back, there is nothing going on for hour after hour after hour, we look forward to that breakfast. You know, we look forward to being to get out of the plane and what we don't want to spend one more second in the airport. What we want is to hit the ground and get our bags and be on our way for our holiday. We don't want to think around eating food at the airport. You must be joking. And of course, the people that came up with this idea were people who are in business class. And for them, you know, it's a gorgeous, comfy place. I want to sleep as long as I possibly can. I don't want to be interrupted with breakfast, you know. And so I arrive, I'm refreshed, I'm ready for my day and i oh, having a lovely breakfast waiting for me. Wouldn't that be charming? But that's totally not the experience in the back of the plane. And I just thought that's such another great example of don't extrapolate your own privileged existence onto what your customers are going through.
0: Oh my gosh, yeah, it's, such an, it's such a fascinating example. I was thinking about what you said about just executives showing up. I've done that before too, where the location I was at early in my career looked the best the day the regional manager was going to be showing up for the visit, right? And it's really hard to get that objective data point. As a leader in the organization, as a leader, yeah,
1: and you know, and I mean, it's it's human, right? I mean, if you have company coming over, of course, you straighten up your living room and you make sure there's no dishes sitting in the sink. And I mean, that's only human. It's it's a and it's a nice thing in a way. And you know, maybe you want to have a few public public events where people can show off like that. But that's a different purpose than getting unfiltered information about what your business feels like to your customers.
0: Yeah, I and I'm I'm curious. Who you've seen that's done that well, when you see leaders get on the edges a bit or get some of that unfiltered information, what works?
1: Oh, well, I think an expectation among each other that they're gonna do that. So I think I think this, you know, what did you learn from a customer this month is 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 a very good best practice. I, I remember years ago I interviewed some of the design heads at Sony and I was asking them at the time, Sony could do no wrong, and this is back when I was doing it. PhD, and Sony had come up with just one product hit after another in their Walkman series. And I asked the head of design for the U.S., I said, well, you know, what what fuels this? Why are you so constantly on on top of the pulse? He said, oh, it's easy. It's two words. I said, excuse me? And so as he recounted, it was every six months, all the design heads from all over the world had to fly to Tokyo, and they met with Morita, who was the guiding light behind Sony at the time. And he would, every six months now, you know, they're all around this huge table at the office building in, in um, Tokyo, and he goes around the table, and each person is asked, what's new? Two-word question, what's new? And by God, you did not want to be the person at that table with nothing to say. (laughs) So, Uh... you know, subtle. He didn't have to hire McKinsey to do that. But everybody knew, you know, I need to be out not talking to my store managers. I need to be out looking at consumers. And, you know, that was the kind of thing that led to the development of the My First Sony line. And again, we've forgotten all this now because it's decades ago. But that line of very robust Walkman designed for kids that was a huge success for them because kids could now listen to books on tape and they had adventure shows and if you were on a long road trip you know that's what you gave your kid in the back seat of the car and and that was all driven by this what's new what what meaning what are people frustrated by what are they trying to get done they can't get done how could we help
0: it's amazing how often leadership effective leadership isn't about answers it's about asking the right question and how that question the shorter it is sometimes <laughs> <laughs> the more powerful it can be. It's just fascinating right. that they had that that drive too.
1: Yeah, but could I add one other thing? It's also sure. consistency. And and you know, for your leaders listening, you know, a lot of the people that listen to programs like this are very intrigued by best practice and the latest idea. And oh wow, you know, I really want to be at the cutting edge, which is all terrific. And I think that's just amazing. But you know, don't change what you're doing every three months because it confuses people. So the what's new thing, I mean, that was years. People trekked to Tokyo every six months and what's new. And that was in place for probably the better part of two decades. So be judicious about when you're introducing this kind of thing. Don't sort of do it for three months and then drop it in favor of the next shiny object. You know, try to make it a consistent part of how your organization operates. So that means you have to be fairly uh, careful about which things you're really going to decide to use as your levers for getting people out to the edges.
0: Oh, interesting, because I can see people going the opposite way, too, of just, you know, too many types of these things. Right. When when you right. see people who are disciplined in organizations of that consistency, but at the same time, not necessarily jumping at every shiny thing, what's different about those folks and how they're thinking and their practices?
1: Well, I think there's a almost a quizzicalness about them, you know, and, and you hear a lot of Not, this is the answer or, oh, we got to do something about that. But you hear a lot of what if and why not. And, huh, what if, you know, what if that happened? Like, how would that affect our world? And you give people permission to have these almost speculative conversations without confining them to prediction. So, you know, what if... You know, what if it became possible to communicate a thought without having to have a device in between or, or an explicit device in between? You know, what if it became possible to have a car that didn't require somebody to tell it to stop? You know, or what if it became possible to have a bicycle that could go 250 miles without human intervention? You know, so you hear a lot of this sort of what if and permission to play and permission to be playful about these ideas. And I think the really good leaders don't jump on everything you know they let it marinate for a while they let it simmer and but they don't let it simmer they don't they don't discard it either so there's this almost playfulness about gee what if we could do that how would that how would that change our customer's experience in a very meaningful way and i think that's really the 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 kind of thing that you see really good leaders doing Um, You know, the other thing that I think is really important, and this draws from my, my most recent book, the one before this current one, which was about the end of competitive advantage and Netflix, because I think that Netflix is one of my corporate heroes. I just think they're marvelous. But if you look at where they are right now, they have taught their entire industry how attractive streaming is and how powerful good content is and how worthy a good story is. And, you know, they have worthy competitors. Every single one of them is now caught up. And so what set Netflix orders of magnitude apart earlier on is now table stakes. Everybody else can do that, too. And when you think about who they're up against, these are companies that have alternative revenue sources. So Disney doesn't have to make a lot of money on its streaming service if it can make it up on the the theme parks and the toys and, you know, whatever else they need to do. So Netflix is now finding itself as a pure play player. You know, in a world where they're competing with companies that have multiple revenue streams and multiple things that they're doing, so, you know, I'm very interested to see what they do next because clearly this competitive advantage is is in full cry, and others have now caught up. So, what's Netflix's next next turn going to be?
0: Yeah, and they've and and they've reinvented themselves well several times now, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating. most organizations don't ever get past the first inflection point, much less multiple ones. And, And I'm thinking about what you said just a minute ago too on the playfulness that, Mm -hmm. and the curiosity that leaders have. And I'm thinking about also the relationship you talk about in your work between degrees of freedom and signal strength of, you know, there comes a point where there's fewer degrees of freedom and there's more strength in the signal of where things are going. And I, part of, tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but part of what I heard you say there is that the leaders who are doing this well, there's a, willingness and a playfulness to engage in those degrees of freedom, but there's also the discipline to not necessarily jump. It's it's conversation, it's exploration, but it's also a, a little a little bit of a temperament of also waiting for a little bit more of the, the clearer signal. Am I oversimplifying that?
1: No, I think that's very, very clear. I think what leaders who are good at this do over time is they develop almost a a sense, you know, they develop an intuition because they've done it so often of when is this really now the signal to noise ratio has flipped and we really need to take action. And what I admire about leaders who are good at doing this is their courage. Because when you've decided, oh my God, we're going to go from little red envelopes to streaming or, oh my God, we're going to go from, you know, being in the case of Adobe, say, we're going to go from being a shrink-wrapped software company to being an on-demand subscription only software company, or in the case of Microsoft, where we're actually going to kiss our monopoly on desktops goodbye so that we can participate in a much broader ecosystem in a much bigger way. I mean, those decisions take an enormous amount of courage. And, you know, there are going to be plenty of people back home who are just devastated at the thought that the this model they grew up with has got to change, or now the the things that they've been wonderful at for years and years are now going to need to be Something else.
0: One of the other invitations you make to leaders is to create incentives that reward useful and you also say awkward information. Mm-hmm. What does that look like?
1: Well, it's somebody coming to a manufacturer and saying, you know, really, this isn't the way the world is anymore. So I'll give you an example. One of my clients is a, um, a mid market company that does uh, furniture so that furniture you know the local kind of furniture coming I mean, you know the one i mean there's always every city yeah. has theirs, the the, the the place you yeah, go you know that uncle charlie is going to sell you the sofa and they all talk about oh quality and they all talk about oh you know it's got great furniture at a great price and it's all the same pitch i mean if, if you look at their ads aside from the spokespeople and the whatever their taglines are it's it's indistinguishable in terms of what they're selling right they're selling decently made furniture at a at a at a decent price. And so you can't afford design within reach or you can't afford Roche Bobois or something, but you can afford this and you can put it in your suburban house and it's going to be great. And so the kind of awkward information that would be presented to someone in that context is well hang on, millennials actually don't want to own furniture. And there is this clutch of new companies that have emerged that basically say, I don't want to own furniture. No problem. We'll lease it to you. So if you move every nine months, which a lot of these folks actually do, you know, nobody wants to move a kitchen table or a sideboard or God forbid, whatever. It's expensive. You know, it's a hassle. So what I'd like is on Monday before my move, I want to call and tell the company, all right, I'm done. Take it all away. They take it all away. And then when you get to your new place, you call the new company, or maybe you call that company again and say, okay, you know, here's my new place, bring it all back. And it's all sanitized. It's clean and you use it for as long as you need it. But, you know, you talk to a traditional furniture guy, right? And this person is somebody who has warehouses and he sources from China and he understands about quality and, he, and in his world, right? He, he's like, what do you mean somebody doesn't want to own their sofa? No, they don't want to own their sofa, you know, or the next trip over is we'll take a company like apt deco, which is a, a urban um, furniture guy. What these folks have figured out is, okay, it's not strictly speaking rental, But it is fast turnover. So I've got a coffee table from West Elm. I'm moving. I want to sell it in a week. I list it on AppDeco. They have people who are just like me who want to buy a coffee table, very similar, who are moving in. And so AppDeco does this incredible brokering between these two. But again, if I were to say that to one of these mid-market furniture guys, you know, the ones that are in your town, (laughs) you know, in the strip mall, (laughs) they'd look at me like I had two heads because that's completely different than their business model. And then if you look at AppDeco, they say, wait a minute, we have to control the whole customer's experience. So we are actually going to do delivery ourselves, whereas the norm in the industry is third-party delivery. And AppDeco says, no, no, no. If we're going to create an experience and it's a furniture-on-demand kind of experience, we can't leave delivery to some other company. They, you know, What if they screw it up? That's The customer doesn't blame them. They blame us if they have a bad experience. So we need to control that. So those are the kinds of uncomfortable things. And when you first present it to somebody who's been in the business, you know, I've been in this business 40 years, you know, and, and you know, their, their idea of a big innovation is water beds went away and thermal mattresses <laughs> came in. <laughs> you know, and you're saying to them, here's a completely different business model. They kind of look at you like, what? So that would be an example of these kind of awkward
0: Truth. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's the you know, Rand McNally quote again. It's a different industry, right. but it's the same. It's I mean, one of the things you teach leaders is avoid denial, right? And so when you hear that thing that's like, "Oh my gosh, we would never do that." Like, "What on earth are you talking about?" is I think the invitation for all of us is to set aside our natural inclination to say no never, that would never happen in our industry, which may be true. But but to be willing to maybe ask the next question of like, "Oh, interesting let me go talk to a few people and float that out there or go talk to some of our customers or the people who aren't our customers and start to think of like, is there something there?
1: Well, right. And you know, what astonishes me is how many times I have the, that would never work in our industry conversation when there are actually startups already demonstrating, not only does it work, it already works and they are building a business around it. And I'm like, Looking at my counterparties, how can you still be in denial when not only is it working, but customers like it and it's actually starting to take market share from you? Like, how can you still claim this is never going to work in your industry? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. and uh, which, which is one of the other things you tell people is talk to the future that's unfolding now. So even if your business may not be doing that today, like go find the business that is and spend some time learning about it. Go talk to the people out there who are already living this reality. And yeah, they may be on the fringes, but boy, that would be so valuable for so many leaders in industry to do who are not doing that already. Even a little bit of that goes a long way.
1: Well, right. And if you think about it, I mean, a lot of people in their, I'll say 40s and 50s right now really don't have a connection to how people who are in their 20s and 30s are interacting commercially with the world. And I'm not saying they're weird. I'm saying that if you think about jobs to be done, right, and I'll take just just our our people in their 20s, you know, today in this day and age, if they're going to get ahead, chances are they're much more mobile than the preceding generations were. In other words, they're, they're moving more frequently. They've been trained to look at assets on a what can the asset do for me basis rather than having to own it. I mean, this is going back to like early, early years. You know, these are the people that were weaned on GameStop, right? Remember, you bought a video game and it used to be you owned it and that's something you owned. Well, GameStop basically said, well, no, actually, video game, you know, you play it as long as you want. When you're done with it, come back here and we'll trade you a video game for somebody else that played this other video game that you haven't learned yet. And they set up this whole kind of access to assets rather than ownership of assets model. And I think a lot of older folks, are still not able to wrap their head around that in any meaningful way.
0: There is so much more I want to ask you, uh, and I'd love to ask you about the inflection point probably coming in higher education and all that. You've done some brilliant writing on so many areas. So I'm going to be linking up to that in the notes. And we haven't even tackled (laughs) most of the book here. We haven't even talked about the how to decide what to do once you start seeing some of these things coming or how to bring the organization along. You go into depth in that in the book. So for those of you who are thinking about how to see around corners and some of these actions or things you want to move on, I would invite you to do that and, and certainly check out the book. Also, uh, Reid, I know you're really active on Twitter and LinkedIn, and that's a good Mm -hmm. place for people to engage with you on some of the ideas and also to see some of the things you're doing out there. Uh, Speaking of getting out of the building, getting out of the space, you're you're doing that a lot, too, of going out and uh, building connections with folks, right?
1: Absolutely. The other thing that's a resource for people is I have a monthly newsletter. And what I do each month is I pick a sector that I think is going through some interesting inflection points. Talk a little bit about those. And we keep an archive of all of those. So if your listeners are interested, uh, you can sign up. It's free. It's at RitaMcGrath.com. I don't do anything with those email addresses other than use them for the newsletter. So you don't need to worry about getting spammed. Right left and center. I mean, that would be terrible for my reputation, so I'm certainly not going to do that. But uh, if you're interested, it's a nice provocative way. I, I've had everything from executives saying, wow, that really opened my eyes to, you know, my faculty colleagues saying, wow, I can use that as a case study. <laughs> so it's
0: yeah. a, kind of an
1: interesting view of what's going on, uh, what's going on in the world as I see
0: it. I totally got distracted when I was prepping for our conversation on your website of starting to read articles. I was like, oh, fascinated, especially the higher ed stuff I'm just so interested in. So I'm going to link up to a few of those. So thank you for that gift as well. Before I let you go, I am curious, uh, You've you've been immersed in this work. You're one of the top thinkers in the world on this. You've gone around and worked with so many different organizations and leaders and industries over the last couple of years, as you've been doing that and just watching Inflection Points yourself, what have you changed your mind on?
1: You know, I think really the concept of strategy, in my view, has really changed. And when I first started, I thought of strategy as this dark art. You know, people went into this room and they were, you know, they had really fancy titles and they, they had spreadsheets and they had models and they did these five-year plans and they emerged with these binders, you know, and it was like, I just thought, oh, wow, if I could just learn to master that, or, or you know, you'd have the consultants that say, well, you know, we broke down the, the, the growth vectors in your industry, and what we've concluded is that 60% of your growth is due to, you know, multi-market vectordom, or whatever fancy name they give it. <laughs> and so I used to think of strategy as just like dark art, and oh, my God, if I could just master the analytical techniques to it, um, that would be the answer. And I have to say, over the years, what has really kind of where I've landed, I guess, I would have to say in the intervening years where I've landed with strategy has been it's so much more about opening your mind to different options, many of which are not quantitative or quantifiable in the conventional sense of putting them in a spreadsheet, but which are quantifiable in the sense of, you know, is it dinosaur-shaped, horse-shaped, dog-shaped? chihuahua shaped if it is a dog, um, you know, sort of get a sense for what it is. But so much more of it is generating a rich set of options and then selecting the best of those. And it's a lot more qualitative and it's a lot more emotional almost than I had thought of strategy classically. And I'm not saying it's undisciplined. What I'm saying is if you're drawing hypotheses about the future, a spreadsheet that's based on lagging indicators isn't going to help you. You know, back to my furniture guys, right? I mean, 30 years of data about how my dad bought furniture is not going to help you if you want to understand how my daughter's going to buy furniture. And so it's much more, it's much, I would say it's not that it's not about analytics, of course it is, but it's also about storytelling. It's about what do we pay attention to? It's about what are the things that capture our imagination? It's about what are those weak signals that we're seeing. And so, I guess I'm seeing strategy much more as an artistic endeavor as it is an analytical one. And that's a real shift. I think it makes a lot of people super uncomfortable, (laughs) super uncomfortable, you know, especially in companies where you confuse strategy with planning and in a lot of companies, that's the case. They, they talk about strategy, but actually what they mean is planning. They're like, what's our budget? When do we have to get it in? How much do we have to have each quarter? What's our target? And that's not strategy. You know, strategy is really taking that step back and saying, let's, paint a picture, let's develop a point of view about what the future could be like, and then work backward into the choices we have before us today. And it's a very different kind of exercise. So I'd say over the years that's really changed for me.
0: Rita McGrath is the author of Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Rita, thank you so much. Thank you. I invite you to listen to some of the related episodes to today's conversation. One of them is episode 266, How to Lead a 100-Year Life with Linda Gratton. Uh, Linda and I talked in detail about her book of the same name, and speaking of inflection points, how that has changed and is still changing in so many of our cultural spaces and in our society of how we Uh, break down the phases of our lives. It used to be that we had the phase of going to school and then phase two was going to work. And then at age 65 exactly, at least here in North American culture, you would retire. And of course, that is changing in many places now. Uh, Many of us are thinking about our life phases in different ways. And of course, we are living longer, many of us. That's a wonderful blessing. It also comes with new challenges, new opportunities, and changing uh, ways that we process our lives and our work. Uh, Linda and I talked in detail about her work on that. And how that inflection point has changed in so many ways. If you want to dive in on that, episode 266 is a good listen for you. Also recommended is episode 361, The Truth and Lies of Performance Management with Michael Bungay Stanier, the author of the best-selling The Coaching Habit book. In that conversation, Michael and I talked about the changes and inflection points in performance management in many organizations. A lot of us have heard that performance management is changing. Perhaps it's even changed in your organization. Maybe the performance review isn't quite as emphasized as much as it used to be. Maybe it has disappeared entirely, or maybe performance is being measured in different ways. And Michael and I, in that conversation, look at the research his firm and him have done around performance management, what is changing, uh, separating some of the fact from fiction, and also looking at some of the broad inflection points on that. And one key insight from that conversation is that What is absolutely changing in most organizations is, whether the performance review itself has changed or not, is regular coaching conversations, much more regular interactions about performance management, either unofficially or officially in most workplace cultures. Uh, We've all seen that shift, and it is something that has changed a lot in the last decade or so. Details on that in episode 361. And then finally, I'd recommend also episode 418, The Way to Nurture New Ideas, with Safi Bakal. And he is the author of the best-selling book, Loon Shots. So many relations to today's conversation with Rita in innovation. And Safi, in particular, has gone back and looked at so many of the really fascinating innovation points over the last hundred years research them, and more importantly, looked at what is it that drove that innovation and how can we as leaders really create the environment in our organizations to help innovation thrive. Fabulous compliment to this conversation. Episode 418 is where to go. All of those you can find on the Coaching for Leaders dot com website if you will set up your free membership it's going to give you access to all of the past episodes more importantly searchable by topic so for example if you want to go find more on innovation one of the topic areas i uh, just hop on there into the portal uh, take a look at innovation you'll see all of the past episodes that we've dived in there in addition you're also going to find every other topic listed my weekly leadership guide. Also in there is access to the book notes. Uh, Rita's uh, book, as I read through it, highlighted some of the key areas. You can find that inside the portal and also access to my personal library. Say, for example, you've got a staff meeting coming up and you're looking for a great article on innovation, or maybe you're going to see a customer and you know they have an interest in a particular area and you're looking for a resource or an article or some credibility piece uh, from a third party. Uh, you could go search the internet for that, or you can just dive in on my library. I've made that all freely available, also searchable by topic, all of it inside the free membership at coachingforleaders.com. Next week, Nir Ayal is on the show talking about how to align your calendar with what matters, a great practical conversation on time management and planning. See you next week and have a great Monday. Take care.